Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Sona Delurgio, and we are going to be talking about the insidious nature of shame. Sona is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a psychoanalyst, and a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. She also provides coaching for women's emotional and relational wellness. Sona has been practicing for 27 years, specializing in eating disorders and disordered eating, body image issues, trauma, and relationships. She has a passion for helping women heal their pain, deepen their relationships, and discover their true selves so that they can be free to live their most authentic, peaceful, and fulfilled life. Sona has a private practice in Westlake Village, California, and provides therapy through telehealth in California as well. Welcome, Sona. Thank you, Jody. So glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So would you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your history with trauma and disordered eating and how you came to be a psychoanalyst? Yeah, sure. So you already said that I've been practicing for quite a while and I love my work and I am so thrilled to be able to help people on their journeys. And I want to say, because I've done this for so long, I was thinking about this. When I started working with trauma and eating disorders, this was before a lot of the evidence-based treatment. We have so many trauma treatments now that are more evidence-based or certifications, but I have been working with trauma for a very long time. And so how I came to work with that, my history of working with that is just that's who was showing up in my office. A lot of women with a lot of stories of trauma, whether early in their lives or something that happened a little bit later in their lives. And sometimes people came in for uh, their disordered eating, but a lot of times I saw these go together. Mm. Uh, a lot of people who had been traumatized had some eating issues. Eating disorders, I have been also working with for a long time. I have my own history early on in my life, having body image issues and probably chronic dieting and trying mm. to find that perfect blend for wellness and satisfaction. And that is not the case. Mm. So we have to find our wellness and our satisfaction with ourselves in different ways. But I really do love helping women to heal from this. It's a very painful situation to be dealing with. And psychoanalysis, you asked how I came mm. to be a psychoanalyst. You know, I've always been interested in depth work and what's going on beneath the surface? What's at the root of what's going on? And after I had been licensed and practiced for a while, I just wanted a little bit more. Mm. I feel like I had a sense of the way to conceptualize and develop a relationship, but I always reached this point where I had the then what? What's the then what? How do we, what do we do with this now? And I got my doctorate in contemporary psychoanalysis. I did the full psychoanalytic training and it really is digging deep and giving you that experience of how to go to the then what yourself in your own work and with your patients. Yeah. So when we sort of reached out to each other about 
being on the podcast, I didn't realize you were an analyst. And so once I started researching your website, I, I just got super excited about that. <laughs> My training, although it's psycho-spiritual, one of our trainers was an analyst. So it's very much rooted in, in psychoanalysis. So I love talking about all things depth. So can you share with us, I guess, what contemporary psychoanalysis is? Because I think there's a there's kind of a bit of um, like psychoanalysis is a bit old fashioned or something. And that's not mm-hmm. my experience, but I know that certainly in some of the therapy groups that we're in that <laughs> there's a little bit of a view like that. So can you share Absolutely. with us what that is? Sure. Yes. So many may consider psychoanalysis to be outdated and unhelpful in treating just about all kinds of suffering. But this is a classical model that it's really grown and evolved over the last century. It's moved from what we originally called a one-person model. That might have been where the analyst tells the patient all about themselves, lots of interpretations. Mm -hmm. Then it moved to a two-person model where the analyst may notice their experience with the patient and tell them all about themselves from the analyst's experience. It's still all about, let me tell you what I see going on with you. Mm. So that insight can be helpful to a point, but we've now reached a point through everything we've gotten to know from attachment theory, early infant research, neuroscience. It's all allowed contemporary psychoanalysis to be very relational and very interactive. So what we're now calling contemporary psychoanalysis values the unique subjectivity of both the patient and the therapist and how they mutually influence each other. It's very interactive. You will learn what keeps you stuck, why you repeat patterns that only keep hurting you, and why changing is so hard. And your interactions and connection with the therapist allow for healing and new safe ways of relating so you can move beyond what's been keeping you stuck. Mm. I didn't ask you this in advance, so I hope it doesn't throw you off course. But, you know, one of the other things that I'm seeing a lot in in the marketing of uh, sort of somatic therapies, there's a lot of talk therapy is old fashioned. We shouldn't be doing that with trauma. Do you have some feedback about that? Well, I think that psychoanalysis is evolving and continuing to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I think what comes next for it is to bring in more of the somatic piece. And I think some of that is coming in. In fact, one of the classes that I've taught at the Psychoanalytic Institute is about the psychoanalytic experience of the body. Yeah. And I myself as a trauma therapist also do my somatic training so I can best help my clients. So I, I think it's best to pull in everything we know that can be helpful. Yeah, I agree. And I think talking to is still a very useful, I'll say technique, but it's the relationship. It's sitting there in relationship with someone. And we're not just talking anyway. You're mirroring back. You're having eye contact. You are actually using the, well, I think well-trained psychoanalysts are actually trained to use their body anyway. That's the attunement that we're talking about. You are picking up on something if you're well-tuned in. I agree with that completely. Yeah, so look, today we're going to talk about the insidious nature of shame. And so I think you are my first guest really talking about shame. So would you help our listeners understand what shame actually is? Yes. Shame is a tricky emotion. And I call it insidious because it really creeps slowly and subtly, almost stealth-like. It doesn't rise up quickly like when we feel rage or panic or excitement. And it holds on tight just beneath the surface, and it mm. colors our perception of ourself in our world and in our relationship. We don't even know it's there. So if we look at the dictionary definition of shame, it's a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. 
So I'd like to expand on that a little bit. Um, (laughs) It's not guilt over something we've done. Someone can feel fundamentally flawed and feel shame over being who they are and not just over particular behaviors. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring in the dictionary explanation because recently my daughter had an assignment where they had to look at a book and they had to say what the dictionary explanation of empathy was. And I read it and I said, that's not what empathy is. (laughs) Here we are. And I put her down in front of um, the Brené Brown sympathy Uh versus empathy video. And by the end of it, ah, I get it now. (laughs) So um, yeah, yeah, thank you for explaining that. And thank goodness for Brené Brown too, for helping us all have more language for this and a better understanding of it. Exactly. And so you've got a series of articles on your website, which are fantastic with the same title. You write that shame is insidious. Can you please say more about that for our listeners? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, if the idea we may hold about ourselves is that we're unworthy of love and belonging, something we instinctually need to have in place for survival, we may guard ourselves so much that we can't truly be available for really being seen and known. So why is shame insidious? Mm. Let me go through a few ways that it impacts us that we Mm -hmm. may hardly even notice. For one, it causes us to hide ourselves. In fact, there may be more hiding of one's true self and a feeling of watching the world around them, like from within a bubble. It can feel dangerous to be seen Mm -hmm. for someone who is trapped in shame. They may fear that if someone gets close enough and really gets to know them, they're going to be rejected or ridiculed because their true flawed self will be realized by the other. This is a really deep held fear by a lot of people. Mm. Another thing, it causes us to quiet ourselves. It makes us, we make ourselves small. Um, If someone is caught in shame, they'll likely keep quiet and not voice their thoughts. And shame will convince someone that if they express their true voice or thoughts or feelings, Again, they will be rejected or humiliated or ridiculed. Also, it causes us to doubt ourselves. We get into that second guessing. If someone even considers sharing their thoughts, their shame is going to leave them doubting. They're going to feel like they're not accurate. They'll tend to defer to another's thoughts as more right than their own. And finally, it has deep roots. Mm. It's a different kind of emotion because it builds up usually over a lifetime of experiences. So like when a more recognized emotion or mood can be the result of a situation, shame develops more as a sense of self. Often we'll find this development starting right from the very beginning of life. And certainly early experiences and family dynamics can set the stage for the deep roots of shame. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how does shame develop Well, it's more commonly known that early experiences of abuse or violation in childhood could leave someone feeling that deep shame. Additionally, we need to acknowledge that shame can develop for people from subtle, less concrete, interpersonal experiences, like experiences of disconnection in their early relationships, not having a chance to develop that secure attachment and feel sure that someone's there for them when they're in distress or a feeling of invisibility, not being seen or recognized for who they are, maybe having been shut down or always having their experiences minimized. Um, Mismatched temperaments between caretaker and baby. These can be natural impediments to attachment, but they're not a deal breaker. But for someone with deep shame though, likely this mismatch didn't have a way to be understood and worked around early on. And also malattunement from caretakers, not being able to have one's experiences and feelings accurately recognized and responded to. It's not quite like feeling invisible, but it's more about never really feeling gotten or known. 
So all of us get to know ourselves through our relationships. Our connections reflect us back to ourselves, and that's how we develop into who we are. So if a child's in an environment where an authentic connection can develop well, ultimately they can't know themselves as valuable, loved, and cherished. Mm. Instead, they're going to have a feeling of unworthy, flawed, and unlovable, and they develop a shame-based sense of themselves. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure by the time this goes to air whether we've actually talked about it, attachment in depth, but would you just, uh, you know, I mean, the audience is for women suffering. I know there'll be therapists listening as well who will obviously know what that is. Mm-hmm. But would you say a little bit more about those early attachment relationships? Because that's it is a buzzword at the moment. There's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of parenting books. There's a lot of relationship books. And I'm sure people would love just to know a little bit more what you mean by attachment? Well, yeah, I think of attachment as the early connection from the very beginning of life that gives someone a sense of security. And if you think about the baby and the mother, if the baby is feeling seen and recognized and held and nurtured by the mother, all is well with the world. You know, it can mm-hmm. start to develop a sense of security that, you know, I'm going to be safe in this world. Someone knows me and sees me and has my back. The kid doesn't think that, but that's their lived experience. If we have a situation where there's a little bit of distraction, let's say the mother is having postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and she might look away a little bit down at the ground while she's nursing, for instance, and the baby can't catch mother's eye. That starts to leave a little bit of detachment. That starts to get in the way of that sense of security. And a child might grow up with an insecure attachment and seeking out that attachment in different ways. Maybe if a child has an experience with a caretaker who is overstimulating or understimulating mm-hmm. or on or off, they might develop an ambivalent attachment. It's a little bit more uncertainty about, can I trust this person? Can I not? Mm-hmm. I want them close. I want them to go away. So we can see a lot of adult relational patterns follow some of those early attachment experiences. Yeah. And certainly with uh, eating disorders, we see these play out in the way that people relate with their food as well, which we may come on to later on. But um, so how does shame show up in women's lives? What does it look like? So I would say most of my clients usually come to therapy because of an identifiable symptom or situation that's Mm -hmm. finally gotten in their way. So maybe they're losing control over their food and weight issues. Maybe their relationship is finally broken into fighting or infidelity, or maybe their anxiety has gotten the better of them and they can't function as they'd like. These are the type of things women might seek help for. And women are often seen or they present themselves as being so together, quote unquote, that they feel ashamed to have their lives even reach this point. Mm. They've become so adept at taking care of others' feelings and needs rather than their own to be good so they're not a burden to others. But what they're really longing for and they're hungry for is closeness and recognition in their relationships. But because of the shame, they worry that if people got close, they would discover that they have these big faults and they go away. So shame could show up in many ways for women. Mm. They may have struggled with addictions or substance use in their lives, food and weight issues. Um, Their relationships may have been one-sided maybe a sense of being lost in their relationships. How about professionally? Even while excelling at work, women may find themselves caught in problematic work relationships, maybe people taking advantage of them or overcommitting themselves and being overwhelmed and stressed out. 
So with all this impact on a woman, she has left herself disconnected and feels deeply alone, even if she's in relationships. She becomes really self-sufficient and doesn't expect anything from anyone, so she doesn't have to feel hurt or rejected. And this is all a perfect storm for food and body image issues to, mm, to develop, yeah. right? Food is a relationship, as you were just saying. It's reliable. It's just about always available. It's soothing. Mm. You know, food has always been our earliest form of nurture at mother's breast. So with the pain and isolation of deeply held shame, women can very often gravitate toward, towards disordered eating. Mm. And those patterns, such as restricting their food or purging or binging on it, chronic dieting, might provide some superficial benefit might become a way for men, women to think they're managing their deep feelings. And some of these patterns, they also serve as a false self, false sense of self that you can better yourself through changing your body. Yeah, and you become yeah. more lovable and more accepted. So what's happening with all of this? Mm. These attempts are only deepening a sense of shame. All the efforts you make to change or perfect yourself only deepen your feelings of shame. And you're constantly in a state of, I'm not okay unless unless I'm thin, unless I don't overeat, unless I could fit into my old genes, on and on. But what is this reinforcing in you? You're telling yourself in your very core that you are basically faulty. Mm. You are not a fully acceptable person for someone else to see, know, and love, unless you, and then fill in the blank with what your own pattern mm. is. And that is so, even as you say that, that is, I mean, I remember my own feelings of that when I was going into my eating disorder recovery. It is so, so painful. And every time someone acts this out, it becomes more painful. And then the thought is that if only I mustn't be thin enough, and that's why I still feel so bad. Right. It's excruciating. It, it is. It's in a sense that I can better myself. It's a concrete way to handle something that feels more amorphous. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, it does not work doesn't hit the spot. No, and uh, it's interesting, as you were talking, I was starting to have, uh, just so that I guess women can have a, a visual sort of look at this, it's kind of like the iceberg, isn't it, where the eating disorder or disordered eating, chronic dieting, body image issues are poking above the water, and then it's the shame, and then that early attachment underneath, it's all kind of under there. That's a great buzzing, visual. Buzzing away. Yeah, very good one, absolutely. And there was one other thing that I just wanted to touch on because it comes up a lot in certainly in my life previously and in my practice. And again, we didn't talk about this earlier, but I'm thinking about rage and shame. They tend to go hand in hand with each other. Would you say a little bit about that? Or is that your experience? Well, I think we can see t both extremes with shame. I think mm. we can see someone closing in and quieting themselves and hiding and making themselves smaller. Yeah. And then I think we can go to the other extreme and see rage when someone's trying to fight to be seen mm. and known and show up. Yeah. But it's also not productive when it's coming out as rage. So both of these sides of the spectrum will need to, you know, need to. No, I mean, the rage becomes alienating, doesn't it, from, from mm -hmm. self and other, so. Right. So both ends of the spectrum, same idea, you're still staying detached. Mm, okay. And so how do women work their way out of this? Where would you start, I guess? First, let's remember shame is powerful and deep emotion. Um, it's translated into someone's sense of self. 
So because of this, the process to find your way out is just that. It's a process. Mm. You won't find a quick fix or a simple formula. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a road and it vol- involves unfolding. And some parts of that process I've laid out, there are a few different areas we'll go through. Mm-hmm. They're going to be knowing yourself, valuing yourself, showing up in your relationships, and healing old hurts. So let me just say a quick something about each of those. Yeah. Knowing yourself, self-awareness is the best beginning you can have in your process of healing from shame. Get to know your past and what your experiences were that shaped you into who you are, and also know yourself in the present. Find that and use that practice of self-awareness and stay tuned in. And then valuing yourself. Once you become more self-aware, then you can make some choices about how to take care of yourself. If you've come from a place of shame, you likely take better care of others than yourself. You may even notice that you struggle with the idea of deserving care. But why is it important to do this? You are giving yourself a message that you are valuable and worth being cared for. And an important piece here, be really mindful of your reactions to valuing yourself. You may find you feel guilty about or you resist accepting this caring behavior. Your inner dialogue might be carrying on about not deserving or taking Mm -hmm. up time or money or space. Just be aware of that so you can work with that. Showing up in your relationships is another really important area. Because shame can cause us to hide and quiet ourselves and doubt ourselves, we are left feeling quite unseen and unknown. Mm. So we have to break through these patterns so you can show up to be seen and known. I know all this, by the way, Jody, is easier said than done, but I'm just giving broad (laughs) brushstrokes here. So allowing yourself to be seen, this is going to bring up all sorts of alarm bells of danger for you if you let someone really get to know you and they notice that you're flawed and turn away from you. This is the danger. This is the worry. That's the fear, isn't it? I know for myself back when I was first in therapy, that sense of shame was that I was like a rotten apple at the core. So why Mm. on earth would I want to let someone see who I really am if that's who I believe that I really was. Right. It's very scary because it's, you know, we need people near us and we feel like that's going to drive them away. Mm. It's exactly why we need to grow some trust in this area though. Yeah. So to begin to develop that trust, we need to take small risks with people that we've identified to be safe and let ourselves be seen just a little bit to start. So you want to take a breath, relax and ground yourself and just speak from your heart. Maybe even let that person know you feel a little bit vulnerable, but you want to express something that's on your mind. And then that last area, I talk about healing old hurts. Mm. You want to allow the pain of early experiences to become known and move through feelings about those experiences. That's crucial. This is a big area. You can do that on your own. You could do it with some self-help. And sometimes it might help to work with a professional, um, come into therapy to help you through some of that. But you Mm. could write about it, draw about it, talk to a trusted other, but just get exploring of that. Yeah. And um, if you wouldn't mind, I just want to come back to the relationship piece because we know that, um, well, from this perspective and from the way that I work, that relationships, it's that early relationship that has um, had injuries somewhere. So the, the wound has happened in relationship and therefore we can also heal in relationship. So yes. for a lot of women, you know, I've seen I mean, I've been a therapist for 20 years and this is quite common. They are actually sometimes in relationships that aren't particularly healthy. So I guess from that perspective, it's hard to trust in a relationship that's not actually a healthy relationship. Right. And that's (laughs) why I want to really drive home the point of we want to take small risks with people we've identified to be safe. 
That may not be the person you're in a relationship with. That might be where you need to firm up your boundaries. Yeah. And kind of know where you stop and they begin. And your safe person might be a family member, a friend, a therapist, a women's group. And that's where you want to take your small risks. Yeah, good point. And so for women struggling with food, weight and body image concerns, can you give them some examples about how they can heal shame uh, specific to these concerns? Uh, Yeah. So now hopefully it's clear that the constant attempts to try to manage food and body issues with restriction or limiting and the really punishing approaches uh, that women are only deepening their shame. So Mm -hmm. hopefully we've made that point and it's taking them farther away from finding the real freedom from food and body image Mm -hmm. issues. So what can they do here? There are six things I've outlined. Number one, attune to you. Learn to listen to your body again. You want to know when you're hungry, when you're full, are you tired, are you in pain? Get a real uh, feel for your body cues as well as your emotions. So tune in. You could really know what you need and not wait to be told by some external food plan or wellness plan what you need, mm-hmm. trusting mm-hmm. your own um, self. So this number two follows along with that. You want to follow intuitive eating. That's the best model to follow. If you're going to follow any eating plan, make it intuitive eating. I just want to say, and be careful with that too, because there's a lot of diet and wellness industry people who have jumped on board the intuitive eating and they're using it as a disguise, but it's really still dieting. You are what's, so right, Jody. Yeah. What's the book that, um, oh, I can't remember. Evelyn Triboli. That's it. Yeah, I would get their book. I would look at their website. They have all the bullet points of the pieces that you need to consider if you're going to follow intuitive eating and be Mm -hmm. very careful about anybody outside of that. Because if it's giving a message of weight loss, that's Mm -hmm. not an official intuitive eating plan. Exactly. And I'll put that uh, book in the show notes too, just for everyone out there. Great. So then the next point, number three, remember Hayes, and this stands for health at every size. That's another movement out there. And there's also a a book related to that. There's a website related to that. Uh, It's important to remember that your health depends on a variety of factors and measures, and weight is not the determiner of your health. But there are really loud opinions out there about the problems of obesity, right? So you want to want to get to know Hayes and how it clears up all the myths so you can find your freedom with your food and body. And so you want to think about your best health and your best fitness and what feels good and what feels mm-hmm. right and what is a fit for you in your life and your lifestyle. And it's all of this is not having anything to do with what your weight is, and what your yep. size is. Yep. It's about taking the best care of you that you can. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. This is a hard one for a lot of people, but it's an important thing to work towards. My next Mm. point, number four, embrace body acceptance. If you are bashing your body and constantly critical of it, you're really keeping yourself stuck in the pain of body image shame. Mm. So body acceptance is about being at peace with our bodies rather than being in battles with them. And it values each individual as a whole person rather than just how they look. So finding your connection to who you are, your value as a person, your own beauty, you're living peacefully in your own skin will allow you to separate from the societal pressures to look a particular way and really embrace who you are. And number five, find and use your own true voice. Mm -hmm. You want to speak up when something doesn't feel right to you, when you need to let someone know how you're doing or what you might need from them. Want to aim to be authentic and present in your life, both with yourself and others. This is who you are. This is your true self. 
So you want to get to the point where you can show up and be seen and let your voice be heard. So there will be less of a need to hide and numb yourself Mm. with emotional eating when you can connect in your relationships by showing up. So the sixth piece here is to bring focus to your relational life. And you were talking about this earlier, Jody. We are social creatures. We are meant to be in relationship with each other. In fact, we're born with the drive to start attaching. And as babies, if we don't attach, we don't thrive. And as adults, if we don't allow ourselves to connect authentically with ourselves and others, we also can fail to thrive. So we don't want to live our lives hidden and isolated and deferring to others. We want to bring more focus to good, safe, real feeling relationships in our lives. And this is going to help to gradually loosen the grip that food and body image issues have. So what I would love to do is really stick with the relational piece, I think, and One of the ways that we know that people can recover from deep shame and addiction, eating issues is through therapy. And there's lots of different types of therapy out there. Mm -hmm. So I want to specifically open up, I guess, what it's like going into a depth uh, orientated therapy. And I guess the reason I'm talking about that is because of this attachment piece and that we use that attachment relationship in the therapy in a depth-orientated approach. So there's lots Mm -hmm. of myths and misunderstandings about depth psychotherapy, even within the therapy field. We mentioned that earlier. Often even therapists get their knickers in a twist about Mm -hmm. uh, the therapeutic frame. Mm -hmm. So can you explain for someone who does want to start to build their self-awareness and to start to work towards these things and does want the support of the therapist. What does the frame look like? And I guess, why is that so important for this kind of work? So why is the frame so important? Let's talk about that. First, maybe explain what the frame is. That's a good idea because people might not know what that is. Okay. So let me get into that. We would consider the frame like the structure and the parameters of the therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Like the space we're meeting in, the time frame, the expectations of each other. Basically, those things that come to be familiar and expected that give us a sense of security when Mm. we're taking part in this very personal and deep reaching process. Another thing that's historically been part of the psychoanalytic frame was meeting multiple times per week. That has old roots and they don't necessarily fit in current times in terms of time and cost. There was a purpose to that originally, though. It was about having enough time to pace the work that we could move beyond the news and the happenings Mm. and have enough space for experiences, thoughts, and feelings to just emerge. This is a really important part of the process, but we also know that the frequency of four to five meetings a week isn't necessary for that to happen. We do know, however, that with each additional session in a week, there is more deepening of the work. There's more continuity to the process. Absolutely. But the multiple meetings, multiple meetings a week aren't required for good deep work to happen. Mm. We're looking also to the quality of the attunement, the relationship, the safety someone feels to allow these experiences to emerge. And Mm. it's really important to leave plenty of time to get to know and explore those blocks and barriers that someone has in place there for their own psychic and relational safety. So these things would be considered important parts of the frame and psychoanalysis, whether it's multiple times a week or once per week. And just thinking there too, because a lot of treatment, I know certainly in Australia, we've got a Medicare system where people get between three and 10 sessions. And I think severe eating disorders, I get 40 sessions. But um, for me, that three to six to 10 sessions, you're still like really not even still getting to know, you're just starting to get to know Just starting, someone. yeah. 
So I want to say something about psychoanalysis real quick on that point that you're Mm -hmm. making. Um, You know, as much as it's changed and we have a lot of evidence-based therapies right now out Mm -hmm. there, which is part of why the the therapists might get their knickers in a twist, as you said, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) that while all these evidence-based therapies have had come out, psychoanalysts were just still talking within their own bubble to themselves. (laughs) So they had a PR problem, I think. But I want to say there has been long-term research that's been happening, more recently being shared now, that's showing that psychodynamic therapy has proved its effectiveness equal to the evidence-based therapies in rigorous controlled studies. Yep, and that uh, is uh, Jonathan. Sh- is that the Jonathan Shedler? Yeah, and some others as well. Yeah, and the added benefit, which is kind of um, to your point that you're making here, mm. that uh, people actually continue to improve after the therapy ends. Yeah, and that's yep. likely because the understanding and insight they gain is just more global, not targeted to just a one-time symptom or problem. Yeah, and it's not just fixing uh, or finding a solution for problems. It's actually getting at the very deep roots and the causes of the problems. So I've actually written an article highlighting evidence, that evidence. So I will link to that in the show notes. But also if you have anything else that you want to send through, so I'll I'll add that to it. Because I think it's really important for people to know that. And the other thing with evidence for long-term psychotherapy, it is a lot easier to gather evidence for three sessions or six sessions than it is for a couple of years therapy people drop out of trials and all those sort of things so yeah it's just right. been harder yeah and if, if we're if our work if the depth work is working to help someone make those shifts then they are more aware of those repeating old historic patterns and doing things differently and approaching things differently so mm. it's a very different change that we're seeing from mm. depth work and then the other shorter term work Yeah. And so um, with severe eating disorders, I quite typically still do work a couple of times a week with people and for people with severe trauma, early childhood trauma. But let's just go back to once a week. Why is it important for the work? Because we are really aiming to build awareness and get to know who you are at Mm. the root. And that takes some time to get to. Mm. We can make shifts in behaviors and in um, faulty thought patterns and that kind of thing. But for it to reach down into who you are, we want to move past that and let the work keep unfolding through Mm -hmm. that safe, attuned relationship as it might emerge in a relationship with anybody. All of those barriers and defenses need to be softened over time in a really safe way Mm -hmm. and paced well. So we do need the continuity to allow that to happen. If we're just Mm -hmm. patching up the symptom and the issue and people are off on their way, they're going to be back Mm -hmm. because it's going to show up in another way. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's around safety too. You know, when people have got complex trauma, there's, it's kind of like if you're going to dive deep into this work and, you know, first there's all the trust and building the relationship, but then once you are diving deep, I kind of feel like it's like letting someone out into the world with all this stuff and no container and no, you know, it, it's not psychologically safe from my perspective. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So on your website, you write, sometimes getting started with therapy is the most courageous thing you can do. Mm -hmm. So if there's someone out there listening today, and maybe our conversation around shame has spoken to them, how can it help them? Well, that's a great question. And first of all, I want them to know it's possible to move beyond shame or your eating Mm. issues, whatever has been behind your suffering. Secondly, I want them to know they can work collaboratively and relationally with someone who is there to really see and know them walk alongside them on their journey to healing. 
I think many people who are suffering didn't have the experience of having someone know their suffering side. Mm -hmm. They had to present themselves as more put together to not burden others. So they learned how to learn how to get through intense emotions and experiences by themselves. And this is really unbearable and lonely. So something that depth therapies provide is a way to safely, at a pace that feels natural, gradually move through that suffering, allowing the experience of someone knowing them and being with them in that suffering. And they can have that experience without having to be alone in it and find a way through it with someone there to keep them safe and guide them to their growth and healing over time. It really, you know, I mean, I spent, uh, I think, before my psychotherapy training uh, about three or four years, and then obviously in training, um, had to be in therapy, but it was it was still a choice for me anyway. So mm-hmm. it ended up being about 12 years, I guess, by the time I finished all my clinical hours and did all that. And I've got to say that that experience of having someone journey with me through just you know, a lifetime of, uh, I guess, emotional neglect and then self-destructive behaviours, there's really nothing else like it, in my opinion. I just I just feel so blessed to have had that experience. Yeah, so it, it does become a leap of faith. That's why I said it's a courageous act, mm-hmm. <laughs> because as you framed it in your question, someone may not even know what it can be like. They don't know that that experience is even possible. Mm. So I hope to put a little bit of hope in someone's ear through this conversation we're having that someone does give themselves a chance to have that experience with somebody. Yeah. And I'm also going to say to make sure that when, if you are looking for psychotherapy, there's different types of psychotherapy. So do your research very well. And actually in Australia, it's not the same in the US, but in Australia, it's not a registered title. So actually anyone can call themselves a psychotherapist here. And yeah, which is a disaster. So please make sure you ask the person and ask, have they actually trained in psychotherapy or depth psychotherapy? And have they had their own therapy? Because most psychotherapists have had their own therapy. And that's a very important point, which I'm going to be talking about in another episode. So great. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. So you also help women through your online group program, We Connect in a Circle. Can you please share more about that? Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. This is a relatively new thing that I've started just this past spring, but it's something I've had a vision for for a long time. Mm -hmm. So in my office, I can work one-on-one with people, help women. I have had women's groups in my office, but I really wanted to make the process of therapy and moving through what keeps us stuck, which is a lot of what we all run into when we're struggling. Mm. I wanted to make that process available to more people and have it be affordable, have it be accessible geographically. So I brought it to this online membership program. And it's an experience where we have live group meetings twice a month. We have the mini courses. We have guest experts. We have an online community forum board type of a thing, like Facebook, but very private within Mm -hmm, that group. mm -hmm. And uh, we have my Breakthrough Pathway, which is something I developed based on how people move from being stuck through this um, deep dive to kind of get to know what's there, to letting go to um, growing and moving on to they finally land at a point where they feel empowered and in charge of themselves. And um, so I'm very excited by it. We've just Mm. gotten going. We've got a small group, but it's a wonderful group of women. And I hope that um, people check it out. 
Oh, this sounds so wonderful because, you know, I mean, the online world is very busy, especially now with everything that's going on in the world. And I think even when I've done a few courses, there hasn't really been any human element to it. So the fact that you, it sounds like you show up in the group and you, do you go live or do you? We go live twice a month, but I'm in the community board too, interacting with people. Yeah, fantastic. um, So, yeah. And people can find out more about that by going to weconnectcircle.com. Okay. And also I noticed that you have very kindly sent us a link to a little sneak peek. So, um, so that is weconnectcircle.com forward slash soul sessions. And I will make sure that I keep that in the show notes for when this episode goes live. So, I mean, you've already said how people find you. You've got another website as well, though, for therapy, haven't you? Yeah. My practice website is drsonadelurgio.com. It's Dr. Sona Delurgio, and you probably will have it linked somewhere down there. Yep. Okay. So I don't need to spell it out. But yeah, I will talk all about my practice and my specialties. You can learn more about me. So that's another place to find me. Yeah, there's some fantastic blogs on there. That's where I found you talking about shame. So some really Mm. nice in-depth approach to these issues, which I think is really important. So, well, listen, I think women are going to get so much out of our conversation today and from obviously your resources online. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. I really appreciated it. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, this is episode 21. For the show notes, go to thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions 21, the insidious nature of shame. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.